0: This is a Stimulus Network podcast. The Cosmic Shed
1: Hello and welcome to The Cosmic Shed. Today's episode is an interview with author Katrina Sylvie. Her new novel, Meet Me In Another Life, has just been optioned for a film starring Gal Gadot. I'm delighted to say that Katrina is being interviewed today by Hannah Little. If you heard our episode featuring Daisy Ridley on Chaos Walking, then you will have heard Hannah Little and know that she is not only wonderful, but a colleague of mine at UWE Bristol. Here's Hannah.
2: So Meet Me in Another Life by Katrina Sylvie is um, out on the 8th of July. And it's what I would call a soft sci-fi novel, uh, which uses the Time loop trope. So the two protagonists, Thora and Santi, um, live their lives over and over and over again. But the twist on that trope that this book really beautifully executes is that in each of those lives, Thora and Santi have a different relationship. It's always, for me, quite a loving relationship, but the different relationships have friendship, lovers, father daughter, um, teacher student, um, colleagues, the list goes on and on and each chapter is, is a different life and really explores what it means to have a relationship which has these different types of love but also how our lives can massively affect who we are depending on the circumstances in which we grow up and what our relationships are and how much that is dictated by our genetics or our experience and as the book goes through Thor and Santi start to have memories of past lives and realizing that they're in this situation where they're living over and over and over again and they're the only two people who remember that this is happening and remember the details of of what's gone before and it turns into almost like a detective novel of them trying to work out um, what is happening to them. It made me cry several times and the ending absolutely destroyed me. I was crying like a baby. I I remember really distinctly uh, finishing for the first time, I've read it twice now, but I finished it the first time in a really, really uh, horrible hotel room in Milton Keynes and I was just laid on the bed crying my eyes out. Um, It it really affected me and it's really beautiful and I'd really encourage you um, to go out and read it. Um, But for now, we're absolutely honoured to have uh, Katrina Sylvie with us uh, as a guest here on the Cosmic Shed. So hello everybody, we're here in uh, Katrina Sylvie's little office in Cambridge. We were going to do this in the Shed, but it was agreed that the Shed would be too echoey. Um, and hot hot. (laughs) it is the hottest day of the year so far so we're doing it in the little office instead where there's lots of soft furnishings which should hopefully make this better quality for the podcast but yes thank you for being on the cosmic shed katrina
0: well thank you for having me i'm very excited to be here
2: (laughs) it is very exciting so um, i I guess we'll just uh, dive right in with the first question so the the cosmic shed is all about science fiction and science fact. Mm-hmm. So we discuss um, the science behind the science fiction. You're a novelist, of course. Your first debut novel is coming out on the eighth of July. Meet me in another life. Um, but but you're also an academic. So could you tell us a little bit about your academic
0: background? Sure, so yeah, it's quite convoluted. So my undergraduate did actually in English literature and then I uh, worked in scientific publishing for a while. And then I decided to do a master's in language evolution, as you do. Um, Ended up um, liking it so much that I did a PhD. And then after my PhD, I moved more into um, language development. So looking at how children um, acquire the language that um, is in the community around them and how it changes as they get older. So that's kind of where I ended up was between language evolution and language development. And I've actually, technically I've now left academia, but I still have like at least two or three projects ongoing because it turns out you can't really ever leave. (laughs) So that is
2: is the nature of academia. You can join, but you can never leave. Yeah, the hotel academia. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. So I I read an article that you wrote for Lit Hope, which is all about the... Time loop trope, which of course features very, very heavily in me in Another Life and how that relates to linguistic processes of meaning generation and shared knowledge. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So
0: um, I actually stole that idea from your TEDx talk. <laughs> so um, if anyone uh, hasn't seen it already, it's it's an excellent TEDx talk. It's called "Language Finds a Way" by Hannah Little. That is the title, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, so. I'm also going to steal the example that you use in that talk, which is um, the example of Ted Danson (laughs) to illustrate my point. So yeah, the basic idea is that when you're trying to understand what someone is saying to you, either if you're having a conversation or if you're reading a book, you get that meaning not just from what is actually said, um, but also from kind of uh, knowledge that the speaker or the writer presumes that you already have. So I think you call that shared knowledge in your talk. I call it common ground. It's kind of the same thing. It's, it's knowledge that um, you both have and you both know that you have. So if you were trying to um, describe to me some person that you'd seen on the street, you might say, Oh, he looks a bit like Ted Danson. Yeah. And the words. Ted Danson don't actually contain any description of a person. If you don't know who Ted Danson is, they're completely useless as a description. Mm. But um, we both know who Ted Danson is. We do. Moreover, <laughs> we, are, we are both fans of The Good Place. And so probably the most uh, salient version of Ted Danson um, that's accessible to both of us is the like older Ted Danson. So I would imagine that you would be talking about an older gentleman, um, kind of Natalie dressed, probably with glasses, grey hair. And that that way you would have successfully communicated the person that you'd seen to me just using this very short short phrase um yeah looks like Ted Danson so the idea is that um the more common ground that you share with someone the more you can communicate with them um in a shorter space of actual things that are being said so you can be concise and also Because we tend to share a lot of common ground with people that we are close to, that we spend a lot of time with, it also, like, using this common ground tends to make you feel more intimate with the person you're talking to or um, the characters you're reading about. So you might be wondering, what has this got to do with time loops? I promise there is a connection. So the thing about time loops is they involve a lot of repetition. So it's most obvious when you think about film versions of time loops that you'll get usually in every time loop film, you get this bit where it's like a montage and it's just like, here's them going through the same part of their day again and again. Um, And what that repetition does, I think, is it really kind of uh, builds up and cements this common ground between the audience and the characters so that means that both you can kind of riff off that common ground as as a writer later on by kind of alluding to it and you can have big effects on the reader without having to you know go on for paragraphs and paragraphs and the other thing is that it also makes you feel closer to the characters it makes you feel like you spent um, you know, the, their entire world might be contained within a day and you feel like you've spent that day with them again and again and again so it um, makes you feel like they're your good friends. That's my argument in that piece anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely.
2: <laughs> Brilliant. So in the, the novel, one recurring theme as well as the time loop theme is that this question of how much of ourselves is predefined. So the characters in the book live over and over and over again and have this argument about whether they're the same people each time whether our our personhood is defined by our genetics and who we're born as or our experiences, our relationships. So Thor and Santi really clash in their different views of thinking about this question Mm -hmm. of how much of ourselves is uh, defined by our genetics versus our uh, circumstances. How does that kind of um, derive from the work that you have done on developmental linguistics and developmental psychology or, or just your own experience of based on whether you think you are who you are based on <laughs> how you've lived your life. Mm. That's a very philosophical question. Yeah, wow.
0: Um, yeah, so I guess so to take the, the scientific part um, first, I think the answer is the same as the answer to a lot of either-or science questions, which is it's both. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I think, sorry, that's it's kind of boring, but I think it's true that um, there's a lot of evidence that, various aspects of like maybe our personalities and um, other things are to some extent heritable so you know you can studies like like twin studies that like contrast identical twins and fraternal twins and that those kind of that kind of methodology lets you um at least in theory disentangle genetics from environment and seems to show that there, there are at least some things that that are heritable um even when you're talking about stuff as complex as personality but that's definitely not the whole picture Um, So my work in developmental linguistics was really looking at the other side was like, once you account for all of that kind of genetic component, and also once you account for environmental background stuff, like uh, family socioeconomic status, for example, has a huge impact on um, children's language development. Mm -hmm. um, Even once you account for all of that, there's still a role for the very specific experiences that children have. So I was working, looking at um, the language input that parents give to their children. And that's a very long storied field of research um, that has kind of consistently shown that there are effects of the specific input that parents give to their children um, in terms of uh, how that affects children's own language development. And my work, specifically with some colleagues at the University of Chicago, we found that. Um, the impact that language input has on children's own language development is different at different times for different parts of language so whether you look at vocabulary like the number of words that children know how to use uh, versus grammar um, so the kind of complexity of their sentence structure, basically for for vocabulary, um, we found that parents who just use a diverse range of vocabulary all the way through children's development, um, their children end up doing very well. Whereas for grammar, it was more helpful for parents to kind of start simple and then increase the complexity of their language as their children get older. So, yeah, that, that kind of contributes to a very big body of work showing that it's not just about you're not like programmed to act out your your smart genes or your language genes or everything in big air quotes here <laughs> that uh the specific experiences you have can also have an effect on you as a person yeah so both <laughs> i think very uh, academic answer there yeah I'm sorry. <laughs> i guess the, i could do the, the, the personal side i think so um, someone in my writers group was kind of accidentally psychoanalyzing me through the stuff that I write about in my books. And she was like, this is all about identity, isn't it? I was like, oh, and I realised. So um, my parents moved from Scotland to England when I was about six years old. And I think part of me was always like, like, almost imagining that there was a version of me that had stayed. Mm. Um, because moving at that age, when you you suddenly become different from everyone around you, like it really makes you aware of like where you came from and where you are now and who you are and stuff. And so that might be the kind of personal side of where the kind of oh, what, what, this version of me might have ended up very different. And yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: So would you say you're
0: more Thora or Sanji? <laughs> Oh, in terms of my attitude to that specific. (laughs) Well, what I was going to say is um, I started writing the book very much from the the Thorough side of things, which is like, oh, we are very much a product of our experiences. Like, we would be very different depending on the circumstances we grew up in. Mm -hmm. And that was... That was kind of where my head was at when I was writing. I was like, oh, it would be really cool and interesting to, uh, partly because it's more interesting as a writer to try and explore all the different ways that characters could be rather than writing about the same people the whole time. But what's really struck me looking at readers' responses is that a lot of people say the opposite. They're like, oh, it was great how you could still tell they were fundamentally the same people in every single story. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I ended up kind of arguing against myself, I think, which happens a lot when writing books. Yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> it's wow. like, you're wrong. <laughs>
2: I felt like they were different people in each chapter. Oh,
0: thanks. I'm glad that that came across for you.
2: Another recurring theme in the novel is uh, the nature of love and how it can manifest between two people in different forms. In the case of this book, the same two people over and over again. So each chapter, they live a different life and they have a different relationship. Mm-hmm. Your husband is Greek. hmm Uh, and you've learned to speak Greek yourself, uh, and you're currently raising a a child as bilingual Greek-English. That's the plan, yeah. And And so the Greeks um, famously have lots of different words for for love, for different types of love, whether that is the love of lovers or the love of friendship, and there's some other ones as well, but I don't speak Greek, so I don't (laughs) know what they are. Um, Do you think that learning Greek has forced you to
0: think about love in different ways? Um, Right, so... (laughs) yeah so you're right modern greek does have it has a bunch of different nouns that can all be translated as as love so yeah i can do a little whistle stop tour <laughs> so uh the most general one is agapi, which it actually maps pretty closely onto the english word love like you can feel agapi for your friends for your family for your partner you can even you can feel it for your country or for an abstract concept so it's very much like love in english in that way Then there's erotas, which is not as um, explicit as it sounds. (laughs) Um, It really means romantic love. And we do have a way of communicating that in English. We just don't have a separate noun. You know, if you say you're in love with someone, that's kind of what what erotas means. Then there's my personal favourite, filia, which is the love between friends. Um, Then there is a really specific word, storgi, which just means the love that a parent feels for a child. Um, So that's like the least general one. So yeah, like my husband is very much like, oh, look at Greek with all of its richness and expressiveness and English could never compare. And I just, my response to that is just like, come back to me when Greek has figured out a distinction between bored and lazy, because right now those are the same word in Greek. And that just doesn't make any sense to me because those are very distinct concepts in my head. So I think basically different languages get more specific in some areas and more vague in others, and it probably all washes out in the end. But yeah to to the actual question like um it's very interesting and valuable to learn other languages and to see how they divide up the world differently however i don't i think i already knew (laughs) that like (laughs) the way that i love my child is different from the way that i love my friends for example i think i was already i don't really subscribe to the idea that you can only you know tell two concepts apart if you have separate words for them um it can maybe help you to to talk about these differences which is which is fun and exciting but um yeah i mean the the, the one thing it does cause is translation mishaps um so uh, at our wedding um actually the day after the wedding my husband's uncle had prepared this um really lovely speech Um, but unfortunately he hadn't given a copy to my husband in advance so that meant he had to kind of live translate it so that my family could understand it and um, yeah as I said lovely speech and it ended with uh, a wish that we would have long lives um, full of Um, erota and agapi, (laughs) two of these kinds of love and then my poor husband who was just winging it was just like and um uh, may you live long lives filled with love and love (laughs) which yeah was a bit of an anticlimax. but but if he'd had time he could have it's not like it's untranslatable right like if he'd had time to prepare he might have said something like um you know may you always uh love and care for each other and may you always be in love like that would have communicated a similar thing but just like using the ways that english does it which is to use like prepositional phrase instead of different nouns yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> lovely so my next question is one that's specifically about my my own interests so i'm a, a lecturer in, in science communication uh along with uh andrew who who runs the cosmic shed and in science communication, we have uh, this concept called science capital, mm. uh, which is basically a measure of all of the things that you've experienced in your life um, that might make it more or less likely to feel like science is uh, for you, which might contribute to you you going into a career in um, science or in STEM so mm-hmm. things like the relationships you have with your parents scientists mm-hmm. um, did they take you to a lot of science museums did they make you watch a lot of not make you watch but was <laughs> there a lot of science stuff on TV mm-hmm. did they talk about science in the home yeah. uh, at school did you go on trips for science like all of these things that make it more or less likely that you'll think, oh yes, this science is part of my world. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the book, uh, Thora and Santi often start with the same preoccupation with uh, science and and the stars Mm -hmm. and astronomy. And they often end up in in science-adjacent careers, so in some lives they end up as university researchers, Mm -hmm. in some they end up as uh, medical professionals mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the careers are, are kind of science adjacent uh, but not always. Mm-hmm. Did you think all about illustrating how our lives and opportunities can lead us into different STEM careers and, and the things that might get in the way of that?
0: Yeah so um, I, yeah I, I realised um, that I kind of I wrote a book about these these two very driven very passionate people who Mostly, just like repeatedly fail to <laughs> achieve their dreams, um, <laughs> but not all, not always, right? Um, and I think the the reasons are different for each of them, and that's I guess what I really wanted to to illustrate was um, that the barriers can be very different for different people depending on on their circumstances. So, thor's problem, especially towards the beginning of of the book, is that she feels like she has too many choices, hmm. which is kind of quite a privileged position to be in but it means that she ends up sort of sabotaging herself because often she won't pick the thing that she really really wants to do because fundamentally she's scared she'll fail at it and there's nothing worse than failing at the thing that you you really really want to do is safer to like you know fail at something you don't care about so much um so that's much more of a like personal internal barrier another factor for her is her parents that kind of the opposite of what you're saying about you know if your parents encourage you and take you to science museums like her parents have a very fixed idea of the person she is and what she should focus on and it's the humanities and that in some of her lives like really strongly influences her so yeah i think both of those can be can be factors in the real world but um santi's problem is kind of the opposite of, of Thor's problem, that he really has a lack of opportunities. Yeah. So okay, he's he's a man and he's straight, but on pretty much every other axis, he has less privilege than Thor. Has he? His parents are working class, whereas hers are professors. he, he is not a native English speaker, whereas she is. Thora and her family are usually immigrants uh, by choice, whereas um, Santi and his family are usually immigrants by kind of economic necessity. So for all these reasons, um, yeah, he often doesn't have the opportunities that that he, he wishes he would have. And so his barriers are much more structural. Yeah. But yeah, um, I mean, as as the the book goes on, um, they tend to not pursue STEM careers because they're more invested in trying to figure out like the mystery of what's happening to them. So but then I was like, is that also a STEM career? <laughs> like, <laughs> if you're trying to figure out like like why you keep repeating your your life? Like, yeah. Anyway. <laughs>
2: Sounds like a STEM career too. I do. Me. I mean they don't get
0: paid, so we, we don't want to encourage people working for free. So Absolutely. Um no unpaid internships in um, mystery solving. I wish that was a job though. Yeah. I would love that job. Is it not just like being a detective? Is that not kind of
2: I, yeah, I guess I'd want
0: to be a detective without having to be in the police. Right. Yeah, private investigator. <laughs>
2: yeah,
0: maybe. I mean you're a researcher, that's kind of that's kind of what research is. Mystery solving. Mystery solving. Just yeah, makes I it guess. sound cooler.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna have to do a rebrand, I think. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> um, great. And then finally, um the news has broken that your novel uh, is set to become a film starring
0: Gal Gadot. Could you talk about how that came about? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I don't I still don't really know. (laughs) Um, I I have a a wonderful film agent who kind of made that all happen in a way that is completely mysterious to me. But I'm I'm really excited that it did happen because um, I mean, it's still early days. We don't know if like a film will actually be made, but like, fingers crossed. um, if it does because the the book was actually more inspired in many ways by films than by other books like most of the obvious sources of inspiration to me um are films that i've really loved like um a big one is eternal sunshine of the spotless mind Mm -hmm. wonderful wonderful film that i realized i'd kind of accidentally stolen loads of visual elements from it and I didn't even realize until after I'd finished the book I was like oh the main female character her hair color changes a lot that's kind of like Clementine in Eternal Sunshine and oh the male character is an artist and he like draws pictures of them all the time oh no <laughs> what have I done um, um and yeah other uh Film Inspirations I guess. Um, the Truman Show is another one. Um, it's not just films with Jim Carrey and there's other ones. Um, <laughs> it's Ventura. <laughs> <laughs> less so but maybe like the <laughs> subtext I don't know. Um, uh, Contact is another b- big one mainly because um, I think Thora shares a lot with Ellie Arroway yeah. and uh, Santi shares a lot with, with Palmer Joss and the characters spend a lot of time arguing about science and religion. And actually Contact is one where I prefer the film to the book. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's okay to say that in this case because I think Carl Sagan and Andrean originally intended it to be a film and then it just the film took so long in development that they ended up writing the book instead but yeah if I'm really lucky maybe one day people will say the same thing about my book that they prefer the film and that would genuinely make me really happy so
2: oh I mean I love the book
0: (laughs) so if the film's gonna be even better
2: we are all in for a (laughs) treat um that was incredible. Thank you so much, Kat. Well, thank you for having me. It was fun. Yeah. And I hope that you'll come back. I would love to. Um, for your next book. Well, I hope so. Brilliant. <laughs> Great. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Hannah. And thanks, Katrina. I certainly hope that Katrina will be back. And, of course, Hannah. And I hope Katrina will possibly join us to talk about the film when it's made. And uh, possibly get us in touch with Gal Gadda as well. That would be good. And I hope you've enjoyed this. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back very soon with an episode on Stowaway. When we'll be talking to Scott Manley, who was the science advisor for the film. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between.
2: This podcast is brought to you by The Stimulus Network.